Hey everyone back again. All right, you know why you're here. We're gonna finish off. I said it was part four last night. It was the episode four. I wasn't covering part four today. Episode five, we're covering parts three and parts four. And like, they're a big chunk to cover. I'm not doing them justice here. I It's just like, it would take way too long for me to explain them totally because it's just going through scripture. Uh, it's going through the Bible and I can't present that to you unless I just <laughs> like I spend hours and hours and hours unpacking every single reference. So I'm going to give you more like the highlights of the points that he extracts from looking at the Bible that are relevant to us here. Now, you know, do the things like share, subscribe, tell your friends. They might like it. You can help me out. You know, all the ways follow me on other platforms. Cool. Start starting here from part three of a Christian Commonwealth and chapter 32 of the principles of Christian politics. Now he turns to scripture, turns to the Bible and the prophetic knowledge and words to understand proper Christian politics for him. So if there is something we don't understand, it's just because we are limited as knowledge though. And this is an important thing. Like many... <laughs> Many different philosophers throughout history are like, well, if uh, we don't get it, it's just because we're we're not God. You know, we're just humans. We're just these lowly humans. We have brains. Like, we don't have full knowledge of everything. We're just, we're subject to our passions. We're subject to, to our emotions. You know, only God is going to have the all the truth. And so if there's anything that we encounter here that we don't understand, it's just because we're humans that we don't know the answer. Now, with all of this, it's important to distinguish the false from the true prophets for Hobbes. Now, the ability to perform miracles is not evidence enough of being a prophet, a true prophet. They must be constant in miraculating, <laughs> in miracularity, in offering miracles, and teaching of the true religion. You cannot, like, so here he's distinguishing between magicians and, you know, people who worship wrong gods and are able to, to make miracles because of that, which is found in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, it's, it, there are many gods. Like, God is like, don't worship other gods, just worship me, the God. And we take that to be like, there must be only one God. When there's a full acknowledgement that, there, that the world and universe are polytheistic. There's many gods, but the Bible was like, this is, this is uh, the, the, the one God's propaganda machine in order to sell that idea of that God being the most correct. Sorry if I've insulted you for calling the Bible a propaganda machine. It's kind of funny though. But anyways, that puts us here into chapter 33 of the number, antiquity, scope, authority, and interpreters of the book's of holy scripture. So, you know, if you read the Bible, it's written by many different people, many different periods of time, many different parts of the world. People contributed to the Bible in many different languages, written in ancient Hebrew. Some was written in was it Matthew or something? One of one of the books of the Bible, I think it was written in Greek. But in any case, lots of different people, perspectives, knowledge, language where they grew up like the bible is just a hodgepodge of different people's ideas it's pretty much youtube today you just go on 
Oh, God. But the Bible has fewer women, of course. Women don't contribute that many stories to the Bible. Now, obviously, there are some disputes as to which books fall under Christian and biblical canon. So, like, there's the apocryphal texts, like, ancient texts about Jesus's life that, that haven't been included in the official Bible. And he's really interested here, like, he's interested in some of those. He's just, he's just interested in whatever contributes to the overall understanding of Holy Scripture, of God's teaching and knowledge. So ultimately, the church is the sovereign authority on this. The church, the church decides what is like the correct text to listen to listen to to read, which aren't the correct texts, and so on, and it and which prophets to follow. And this makes sense with his ideas. Like he wants to have someone tell him what to do and what to eat, and have everyone else follow along in the same path. He doesn't want to have to think for himself doesn't want people to think for themselves, wants them to just be spoon-fed all of the knowledge that they need in order to live on earth, in order to live among other people. And that puts us here into chapter 34. I'm going quickly because most of this is just him recounting stories from the Bible, and it would take me too long. There's no way I could do it. So we're going to have to move quickly. So chapter 34 of the sig signification of spirit, angel, and inspiration in the books of Holy Scripture. So firstly, bodies are physical things in space. They have substance that denotes their different shapes, sizes, and looks. This is the nature of substance in, in the world. You know, we are bodies, we take up physical space. There cannot be an incorporeal body, like a non-physical body. That doesn't exist for Hobbes. So the spirit in a secular sense, like, um, I don't know, like our driving, our driving force in our lives. This is incorpor incorporeal. This doesn't have a body. Spirit is like our guiding force. It doesn't, it doesn't have a body. You can't touch it. And it may refer to also like a psychological disposition, like your spirit to do something or anything else incorporeal. Religiously though, spirit may refer to God or God's delivery of wisdom or power in us to move and to drive us. And it may be incorporeal, like it's not physical. God's words, God's power, God's divine power, it's not physical. It just, it's a non-physical thing that occupies us and pushes us, it moves us. And angels then, so if you read the Bible, there are lots of angels, people who just appear out of nowhere and offer knowledge of God, God's will. Angels are God's messengers, and they are a manifestation of God's power. So in the Bible, angels appear as both corporeal then and incorporeal. They appear corporeal because people see them, so therefore they're physically there. Maybe they can't touch them. In some cases, I think they can, though. I think that the angels are physical, but I'd, it's been a while since I've read it. Uh, but in any case, like for Hobbes, they are both incorporeal, they're nobody, but then they also uh, have some kind of a shape. So therefore they take up some space. They are physical in some, in some respect, like a ghost is physical, like you see it. So it's taking up some kind of space, even if maybe your hand will go through it. 
Now, all of this is important, like each thing, he's just listing off like attributes of the different parts of the Bible and different figures within it and outside of it, just to provide us a, an overview before getting into its significance in informing the idea of the Christian commonwealth. And that puts us here into chapter 35 of the signification and scripture of kingdom, of, of the kingdom of God, of holy, sacred, and sacrament. So Hobbes interprets the kingdom of God beyond its narrow association with heaven. For him, for him, he wants us to completely get rid of the idea that there's like hell down there, heaven is up in the clouds, and, and this. He, he doesn't believe any of that. He, at least he's not using that to inform his ideas here at all. Instead, we find examples in the Bible of the kingdom of God being established on earth, like with the people of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, the children of Israel. They, they establish the kingdom of God. So God is their sovereign with Moses as the first king to be succeeded by Saul eventually, uh, and then David, I guess, at some point. And so we see justification of sovereign authority on earth. And we see in the, in the Bible that when kings have not been established, that there's like chaos. So you needed Moses to come in and say, these are the rules, follow them. Now, if you remember from the first episode, Hobbes makes it clear that the sovereign and the commonwealth are kind of like a body. You know, there's a head, different people and institutions comprise the nerves and, and power and muscles of the body. We see the same thing here with the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God has different figures and structures that act as its limbs, tendons, like priests, temples, sovereign power that's going to maintain the authority of religious authorities. You know, all these things serve necessary functions here. That puts us into chapter 36 of the word of God and of prophets. So the word of God is gospel can't, you know, the word of God is beyond reproach. You cannot challenge it at all. It establishes laws and edicts that must be followed, like the Ten Commandments. So prophets communicate like God's words. They are the people who have been responsible for distributing God's words to everybody else. Now Hobbes asks, though, how God can communicate incorporeally to humans, because we don't know, or I might mess up the story here, but Moses went alone up on Mount Sinai. Was it? Yeah. Up on the mountain. Moses goes up alone. No one knows what God looks like or what that conversation looked like at all. Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. How did, how did God communicate with Moses if God is not physical? If God wasn't a physical person using language, using a mouth, to communicate how did God do it? The answer is simply that God created our senses and so can communicate with our senses. God just like streamlines knowledge to us into our ears, into our, I guess into our ears. I assume God wasn't writing stuff down for Moses. This maybe, I don't know. I have no idea. I wasn't there. As soon as I make my time machine, I will, I will be there. And <laughs> that, that puts us into chapter 37, of miracles and their use. So miracles are supernatural events produced by God to revitalize faith in God or to enact something that God wants to see enacted in the world. So it's ministers, 
uh, like, or it's just often happens through ministers, priests, prophets, etc. And it also can be used by these people to do that very same thing in uh, reestablishing or revitalizing overall faith in God and faith in these people, faith in ministers, prophets, and so on, as being the rightful heirs to God's word. Now, when confronted with miracles, people have the choice to either believe it or disbelieve them. Like they can say, oh, I, yeah, that, that's legit. That's a God action. Or they could say, no, that's, that's not. And they're, you know, people are not totally irresponsible or it's not totally their fault if they choose not to believe in a miracle because a miracle could have been conducted by a magician or by a false god or something. And in which case he would think that it's totally just, I guess, that people don't believe it. So people must have proper knowledge of like proper God and the proper God's miracles and actions. And it is the responsibility of the established priests and other, other figures to make it clear which miracles are properly God's and which miracles are, you know, set up by magicians or uh, other demonic type figures or people worshiping other gods, false gods. And that puts us here into chapter 38 of the signification of scripture, of eternal life, hell salvation, the world to come, and redemption, or hell comma salvation, and redemption in the world to come. So Bible gives us laws to follow lest we burn in hell forever. At least that's how the story goes. Well, we, you know, there aren't, and Hobbes is clear, you, this isn't in the Bible, right? There's no like... There's no hell clearly described. There's this moment when the earth opens up, like, I think, is it before Moses? Or like right when Moses, like there's very, there's a very clear moment where, at least in the King James Version, where the earth opens up. And uh, maybe that's like hell's down there. Who knows? People interpret that to be the case. But we don't really find it in the Bible. Like people who, who sin aren't going to like this thing called hell. Instead, Hobbes thinks that places like heaven and hell, like in the case of heaven, the kingdom of God actually being of the earth, heaven and hell are not these abstract metaphysical uh, eschatological zones for God's judgment and punishment and all that. No, no, no. For him, heaven and hell are states on earth. If you commit sins, as he said before, in terms of breaking natural laws, like humility and equity and all that, you will suffer. It's almost just like karma for him. He thinks that if you commit sins, like breaking the Ten Commandments, you will suffer on earth, and that is your hell. And God's kingdom is clearly demarcated for him. In his words, God's kingdom was in Palestine, and the nations around about were the kingdoms of the enemy. And this written in 1651, of course, good to know that God's kingdom is in Palestine. And that puts us into chapter 39 of the significance in scripture of the word church. Or this, of, <laughs> I won't edit that out. He's just laughing at me. Of the significance in scripture of the word church. So he defines a church as a company of men professing Christian religion united in the person of one sovereign. At whose command they ought to assemble like a priest. They ought to, or minister, they ought to assemble without whose authority they ought not to assemble. So the church is like a mini commonwealth where you have your sovereign, the minister, priest, whatever, 
under God's sovereignty. For Hobbes, it would be a minister. I don't think he's, I don't think he's a huge fan of the Catholics, but I don't know. I, he might be. I, I don't think he was though. But the minister, that's that's what a church is for him. And now on to chapter forty, of the rights of the kingdom of God in Abraham, Moses, the high priests, and the kings of Judah. Remember, the kingdom of God is in Palestine. I will keep repeating that. It's important to repeat things sometimes for memory. Abraham was first to make covenant with God and therefore was the first sovereign. I say Moses before, whatever. Abraham was the first sovereign. There goes my credibility. So his heirs would succeed him like Isaac, for example, with Moses. Eventually, uh, we needed God to actually intervene. Like that's when God actually is like, take on the mantle of here are the laws. Abraham and his son Isaac, like the story goes, Abraham, uh, God commanded Abraham to kill his son. And just as he's about to, he God stops him and is like, okay, you have sufficiently listened to me. You are about to kill your son. So you are the first like, you you believe me i'm i am god to you this is great you're the first sovereign so when it came down to moses and god gave him all these rules it was like a time when god was like okay we need total we actually need rules and people need to follow these rules so moses was tasked to recruit 70 priests after he did uh eleazar took his role with with and then joshua would come along with joshua as a as a military general and so here we see that sovereignty is bound up with Eleazar and Joshua with military rule. Sovereignty is tied to defense and it is tied to having power. And what other way can a sovereign demonstrate power unless through the military? And we find that in the Bible. Find examples of it uh, for, throughout much of the Bible. Was Joshua the one? I think Joshua was the one who like defeated an army of a few thousand people with like a ram's skull it might be somebody else but this this badass part i think it's in the book of joshua where joshua's running around hitting everyone with a ram's skull defeats everyone but yeah this sovereign figure this kind of general army army general type person military force acting at the behest of another sovereign figure that puts us here into chapter 41 of the office of our beloved, blessed Savior. So there are three parts of the office of the Messiah, our Savior here being uh, Jesus Christ. There are three parts of the office of the Messiah. There's the Savior, there's the prophet, there are the prophets sent by God, and there are kings. So there's Jesus, prophets sent by God, and kings. So Jesus engenders all three of these, really, at the end of the day. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was a king, king of the Jews. Uh, and he was the savior. Or as you see on Instagram reels of Texas Christians, uh, like, you know, reminding us all that Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. I, I don't like power that much. I just don't know what it's... But apparently, I don't know, whatever. So all these people are wrapped up in Jesus, but then they're also fulfilled by others as well. There are other prophets, other ministers, other kings, of course. So uh, now, of course, Jesus didn't have a kingdom per se, except God's kingdom. He wasn't the king of anything. He was a poor dude, poor Palestinian dude. 
Because remember, God's kingdom is in Palestine. So a Palestinian dude was Jesus, uh, killed by the Romans. Now Hobbes is clear that Jesus respected authority and therefore sovereignty. Did he? Eh. Yeah, you say so. And this is an exemplary figure for him of why people should just follow sovereign power. I mean, if Jesus did, why can't you? For Hobbes. And that puts us here into chapter 42 of Power Ecclesiastical. Now, obviously, rulers weren't Christians before Christ. You needed Christ for there to be Christians. Only through the work of the apostles did sovereignty begin to adopt Christianity. So after the death of Christ, the, pot, the, the apostles went out. They all, many of them experienced brutal deaths, but they were spreading the word of Christ, spreading the word of Christian God to everyone so that rulers would begin to adopt Christian doctrine within their idea of sovereignty. And like, <laughs> you know, if you look at the entire history of civilizations on earth, you know, it's widely accepted that the first states started to emerge like 10,000 years ago. I know that like archaeology is problematizing this a little bit. It might be earlier, maybe it's 20,000 years ago, whatever. Even if we accept the 10,000 year mark, you're saying that for 8,000 years, people were just doing sovereignty wrong. They needed Christ to come along and then tell them how to properly do sovereignty. Like, doesn't that fly in the face of everything he says about it being natural? If... <laughs> whatever. So the apostles then, in spreading the word of God, occupy the place of spirit within the Holy Trinity. So the Holy Trinity within Christian dogma is that you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit was actually communicated by the apostles to everyone to spread the word of God now, of course. <laughs> is Jesus really the Son of God, or are they the same thing? Big question here. I don't know. Depends which part of the Bible you read. Now, the apostles had first ecclesiastical power. That was the first power they had, ecclesiastical power. But because the kingdom of God, remember, in Palestine, but because the kingdom of God is not civil power, no minister should be obeyed as though they have civil power. And this is, this is uh, interesting, I think. So, as he said, the kingdom of God in Palestine. Kingdom of God... Uh, doesn't isn't the same thing as sovereign power so people shouldn't just submit to it like they do to sovereignty or to sovereign power that is people have not consented to it like they do sovereignty and like they do uh sovereign power so the apostles essentially just permit entry into the kingdom of god through baptism which is the submission to a certain kind of sovereignty that is god's ultimate sovereignty but still people must respect the the real material physical sovereigns on earth so like where does baptism come from maybe it's like the case of moses who had bathed someone who's suffering from leprosy and then came out being cured or asked them to bathe themselves or whatever we get it yeah and then john the baptist would run around uh you know professing this you have to you have to bathe yourself in order to enter into the kingdom of god a very low entry point like it's harder to get into some bars which is weird, but in any case, it's like, this is the, the price of entry. And the apostles were speaking the Holy Spirit, trying to get people to join their kingdom. 
Now, within this dynamic, the church works or acts as a judge for the kingdom of God and the commonwealth, where no proper Christian should fear punishment because their doctrine would mirror the commonwealth. So you had commonwealths long before Christianity. And Hobbes is saying that Christians like perfected it. Their religious doctrine perfectly lines up with the natural order and therefore with the natural order of sovereignty. So Christian Christianity is like the necessary religious supplement to the existing commonwealths. And now, of course, as we've already said, scripture's first laws emerged with the Ten Commandments because civil laws, or and they became civil laws because of people's submission to Moses as a sovereign figure. So what we get in the New Testament then, well, one of the many things we get from it, like we get some very, very amazing teachings that I wish more Christians would follow, but what we get in the New Testament aren't laws. We don't get laws there for Hobbes. They are guidelines for salvation in God's kingdom, like open your house to strangers, like uh, he used with, who is without sin may cast the first stone. I mean, these are great things like take in the sick and weak, help the poor, fight against the capitalists. I mean, these are all teachings of the New Testament, They're, but they aren't laws. And Hobbes is clear about that. That would be wrong because they conflict with sovereign power because sovereignty is often like very they don't follow Christ's teachings a lot of the time. I don't think that our current presidents are like necessarily have everyone's interest in mind or are acting with, with you know, Christ's teachings in their minds. Because at the end of the day, sovereign power still reigns supreme on earth. And they have the power to decide what to teach and which laws to establish. Whereas Christianity only helps guide us in the way of teaching truth. For Hobbes. It's just the way by which to guarantee our salvation in God's kingdom. Now, obviously, the church has a shaky relationship, like historically, uh, with sovereignty. You know, there's popes and, and sovereigns have duked it out many a time. Even the church itself was split. Kings would adopt different religions to fit whatever things they were trying to do. So, like, definitely a shaky relationship here definitely not the neatest one. So when popes opposed sovereignty, Hobbes thinks that they are erroneous. They were, they're acting incorrectly if a pope opposes a sovereign. Only the sovereign, not religious figures, can make laws. And that puts us here into chapter 43, the last one of part three, we'll get into part four. Chapter 43 of what is necessary for a man's reception into the kingdom of heaven. Man, I assume this applies to women and others as well, but leave that up to you to decide. So obviously there may be moments when God's word conflicts with a sovereign's. Like a sovereign might not be of the Christian faith, and they might make laws that conflict with the Ten Commandments or with other things, other teachings of the Bible. Now this is most likely the case when grifters or false prophets claim to speak God's word. So it's like, what do you mean? So a sovereign can never be wrong, which is clear. Like so far as he's been this whole book, he thinks sovereigns cannot be wrong as long as they're established by consent. But lots of sovereigns have conflicted with, like all, all across the world, aren't Christian and conflict with that. So I don't know, hard to follow. They must follow both civil laws and Christ's teaching. 
for or anybody has to follow these laws. Now, while we can't be sure that all of the Bible's precepts, uh, you know, whether they're true or they're the word of God or just someone who wrote it down, uh, two things are clear for us to guarantee our salvation. That is, we must repent according to accepted laws and we must worship Christ as king. As long as we do these things, everything else doesn't really matter for Hobbes at least in the Christian element, to enter the kingdom of God. You still have to follow all of the sovereign's laws, of course. You can't, you can't do away with that. And that'll put us here into part four of the kingdom of darkness in chapter 44, of the spiritual darkness from misinterpretation of scripture. Now, the children of darkness are the people swayed by Satan, or to some, the people in Palestine, which uh, kind of goes against what Hobbes said, because remember, Palestine is the kingdom of God. The children of darkness are responsible for Hobbes. They try to drive people away from God, and they try instead to control them with teachings other than God's teachings. And they do this by worshiping other idols, other gods, or, li or listening to Aristotle, or reading Aristotle. Like Hobbes hates Aristotle so much that he puts him on the same, like, wanted list or, like, no-fly list as, like, blaspheming, demon-worshipping, like, the people who he really hates. Like, he, he hates Aristotle so much he puts them on, on, puts him on their level. Now, in all of this, the church is no angel. I think he's very clear about that. Hobbes thinks that the church dips into the kingdom of darkness when they make uh, they make it seem like the church is synonymous with God's kingdom, which it isn't for him. God's kingdom is much more abstract. Any church that claims to be like the site for God's kingdom is wrong for, uh, for Hobbes. Or when the church materializes God's body in the form of uh, bread and wine, like um, in the Catholic, Roman Catholic church, the one that I grew up in, as a, once as a little altar boy. That's why I'm allowed to be so harsh with Christianity. I mean, I was of it. I'm allowed to. But for those of you that don't know, within the Roman Catholic Church, there's this point when you go up and eat this stale piece of disgusting bread, and it is supposed to represent the body of Christ. Why we would be eating the body of Christ, I have no idea, but we do. While the priest drinks wine, that's the sign of, of Christ's blood. It's like, I don't want to be drinking this dude's blood. But in those, Hobbes hates that. Hence my belief that he's not too fond of Catholicism. And that puts us here into chapter 45 of demonology and other relics of the religion of the Gentiles. So the Greeks, he always hates them. The Greeks were the most pernicious creators and disseminators of demonology or doctrines of devils because they believed in more, more than one God, right? They didn't. They didn't subscribe to this idea. So any claim of incorporeal spirits is demonology to Hobbes. So the idea of any of the any of the gods on Mount Olympus or anywhere else, like this is all, he hates this. This is pagan nonsense to him. So even instances of possession in the Bible can be chalked up to disease or corruption. Now he doesn't, so he doesn't think, he, do, he definitely does not believe in like exorcisms. He doesn't think that like, the devil is this creature out there that's possessing people. 
right? He, he doesn't think of it in those terms, as I think I've already made pretty clear. Now, people risk committing blasphemy when they uncritically worship idols and imagery because they are by nature limited compared with God. So he's not a fan of any kind of iconography of God, like Jesus being associated with God and, and you know, the depictions of him being tortured in the Catholic Church. I guess you can physically depict Jesus because he was physical, but any other depiction of God, um, Hobbes has an issue with. So if a sovereign ruler asks people to worship an image in their place without saying the image contains their soul, then that is fine. So the issue for Hobbes is if like, because he, he thinks you can put up like an image of your sovereign or of Jesus or something. The problem is when you say like this image is has like physically has Jesus's soul in it or the soul of God or something. This would be for him totally wrong. We're just living in a material physical world. God is, you know, we can't, we're humans. We, we don't have access to it. So we can't just claim to have this access to the divine in such a, a neat way. And anytime that we do that, this is just a grifter, like the church for him, trying to sell us this idea so that they could take money from us, essentially. Now, we may only worship an image if it is properly approved by God or Jesus. So it's also a sin to worship an image out of fear and punishment. Like you're only doing it because you're scared of the result if you don't. Now, of all the images in the Bible, uh, Hobbes is clear that he only supports uh, Moses's serpent and the ark's cherubim. Now, by contrast, Aaron's calf uh, is is, idol is a case of idolatry for, um, for, for Hobbes. And you can Google images of these things. Uh, they were taken with like an iPhone 9, I think. the um, Or it, was, it would have been earlier, like Noah's Ark, uh, the cherubim. I think it was first captured on iPhone 4 or something. So even worship of saints or images of Jesus and Virgin Mary are idolatrous, even though I said before they weren't. But my credibility goes out the window. For him, he thinks that this is idolatrous. And that puts us here into chapter 46 of darkness from vain philosophy and fabulous traditions. So philosophy can only emerge when people have needs met and can therefore spend time doing quote unquote unproductive tasks. So for him, people can't do philosophy if they're living from hand to mouth, which is like a very, obviously it's a Eurocentric way to understand what philosophy can possibly look like. Uh, this belief that like, society needs to re reach a certain state of the like the division of labor people providing for others to create wealth to create this like leisure class of people who can sit around thinking like does philosophy need to be like reserved for classes of people who have attained enough to not be like part of that society or have people who've been deep in the trenches of like daily life and work being exploited are they not allowed to do philosophy hobbs have they not historically? Because I think they have, but Hobbes didn't have the internet like I do. Now he takes this idea so far as to say that leisure is the mother of philosophy, and leisure is only gifted in commonwealth that maintains peace. So idle philosophy inevitably pursues the unknown, like with Plato and Aristotle when they're searching for, you know, these divine truths, like justice, love, beauty, everything like that, which 
Hobbes has no time for. You know, he's not, it's just, for him, it's just God. There's no other ways to imagine pursuing the metaphysical or the beyond the physical. Like, it's just God for him. Now, they gave us, for him, to Plato and Aristotle birthed the metaphysical and being able to question it and look for it. Hobbes also hates their celebration of democracy and their criticism of other governments, their tyrannophobia, as he mentions earlier. And that puts us here into the final chapter before the conclusion, chapter 47, of the benefit that proceedeth from such darkness and to whom it accrueth. Who benefits from this kingdom of darkness? Specifically, he looks at the Roman Catholic Church uh, and, and Presbyterians who... <laughs> Who, who are more interested in power and usurping sovereign power than spreading the word of God. They're more interested in accruing monetary wealth and other kinds of power than actually spreading the word of God. So their discourse of hell and heaven make the soul seem tangible and corporeal, as though the soul can burn forever in fire, as the idea of hell is often, is often communicated. But Hobbes is like, how is that possible unless the soul is corporeal, like the soul is like a body that can suffer, that can feel pain? For him, it can't. If the soul exists, it can't feel pain. So that idea is useless. He thinks that these narratives of heaven and hell are just ways to control people, really, which is like, he doesn't like that kind of control, but he likes sovereign control, which is people submit to through consent, at least. So their discourse of heaven and hell make the soul seem like it is tangible, like it has a body, like it is corporeal, uh, as though it could feel pleasure and pain. Also, their use of exorcisms or Aristotelian metaphysics, this all work to stifle people's minds and to properly cultivate a relationship with God. And yeah, that puts us here into the conclusion where just briefly, um, I want to highlight that you know he reiterates that People should be obliged to fight in war. To be conquered is to submit to a new uh, rule. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, that's, that is Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. Like I said, I had to be a little bit short with the third and fourth parts just because it would have taken way too long uh, to go through all the, all, all, there's so many of them. Uh, the religious references Go, you got to read read it yourself to really get a sense of that. But if there's anything else I excluded or got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, if you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe. Help me out any way that you like if you want. And yeah, stay tuned. We're going to continue on this talk of justice and the social contract and states uh, next week with John Locke's first treatise of government and then the second treatise of government. And then we're going to talk about mill and utilitarianism. Just because I'm teaching a course on this and this, this is what I have time to read now. I would love to be reading other things, but I have to read this for the class. So I may as well present it as well here while it's still fresh in my mind. But yeah, on that note, hope you're all well. Take care.